Say what? Yeah, okay. You, I'll keep going and you keep sitting or you can sneak out. No, that's not how it's going to work. But it is interesting. So our team is probably out of church now and they're kind of uh, getting some food and, and they've seen a few are brand new. And uh, Jim was, this was a first time to Haiti for him. This is a, a thing. He's been in some severe poverty scenarios, been all around the world. But Haiti is its own, it's its own thing. So um, that is a good experience. As we're opening the time here together, let's stop and pray for them. Lord, we do pray for our team who is there in Haiti. Pray that they would be a blessing and also be blessed. I know from experience that often we go with the intent of, of making a big difference and having an effect there, and often this scenario has far more effect on us, and that's the reality, and that's just fine. That's how it works. But we do pray that our team will give a push to those there in the, in the ministry. They'll be encouraged and uh, grown, and uh, we thank you for the partnership we've had with them for all these years, and uh, pray your blessing on them. We pray that in Jesus' name. So in the preparation for this, we're in this series, Tears of Sorrow, I remembered something back, it's been almost 30 years ago now, I was in ministry back in Indiana, and I remember standing out in this lawn, beautiful lawn, holding a wheelchair, set of handles in my hand, it's a beautiful day, clear blue sky, which is not as often as it is here in Colorado, but it was a spectacular day. And uh, in front of this sprawling Midwestern farmhouse, family uh, farm, hundreds and hundreds of acres, had all these outbuildings and the barns, you can probably see the arrangement, big manicured lawn, brand new red firebird sitting right over here to my right. And uh, tables out in the yard with food on them and people coming. And the reason I'm standing here holding this chair is because the mother who is in this chair, probably in her late 40s, um, is so stricken with grief that she's literally paralyzed. She hardly spoke for almost a week, ever, could not walk for many days. And she's literally in a chair, and we have like a receiving line of people coming to say what they try to say. And I remember standing there feeling these questions because what had happened was her 18-year-old, 30 days from graduation son, who was the owner of that Firebird, was a, a great student, spectacular athlete. He had a full-ride scholarship to Indiana University to play basketball. That gives you some idea how good he was. Dated the cheerleader. I mean, the whole thing. And one day after school, he went home and took his own life with a gun. No, no questions asked with that. And as far as I know, we, nobody's ever figured out why. So you're standing, I was standing, holding these handles thinking, these questions, big questions that I think matter. Uh, I, I'm wondering why if death is so inevitable, it's so 100% effective, why does it affect us so much? Why does it have such profound impact on us? Why can't we see that one coming? Well, in this case, it would be reasonable to say, well, this is an unnecessary and like uh, 
so unneedless, this death. And you say, well, what, what could God possibly have in mind? And then you're wondering, because I am sitting here and I am not feeling judgment at all, I'm just asking the questions. Is there a faithful way to grieve in this circumstance, in other circumstances? Is there, is there something that God has in mind there? Does grief have parameters? And then I'm thinking, hmm, why do emotions that seemingly would have been put in place into life for our benefit, why do they have so much profundity that they can actually cripple us? I had a man after the first service, a doctor who told me there's an actual declared diagnosis that grief can actually cause heart attacks in people to physically die. Grief stricken. Why would that be the case? Why would our emotions do that much? And then is there hope? Are we truly shackled to these emotions so that we have no way out? And this series is intended, last week we heard from Jim, and that was much more of a joy-based tears, although there was sorrow wrapped up in that woman who broke the perfume and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair at Simon's house. There was sorrow over her sin, but great joy over forgiveness. Next week, we'll hear as Jesus stands and looks out over the city of Jerusalem and cries. And today, we're going to hear about the great event in John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus. Now, what we're going to talk about is some significant emotions. That's the focus. We could spend six weeks in this chapter gleaning so much theology and understanding and help for our lives, but we're going to talk about emotions today. I may say some things that you disagree with. That's okay. You're wrong. It's not your fault. No, I'm only kidding. It's okay for you to do that. Please don't just check out, though. Let whatever just happens in your mind in this journey process. Come with this. The reason this is in here is for us to glean because this narrative has so much detail in it. If you have your Bibles or on your phones, your iPads or whatever assorted electronic paraphernalia you have with you, turn to John chapter 11. We're going to just read through this chapter and we're going to learn some things. I'm going to suggest this. In here, we're going to look at a couple of details and some implications of our emotions. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? You all know it from Sunday school. Jesus wept. It's in this passage. Jesus probably, I really think, in this passage does more to affirm human emotions than any psychiatrist, psychologist, philosopher, great teacher or thinker did in all of human history in this passage. John chapter 11. We're going to read through it, and then we're going to come back and, and plow through a little bit more. Stick with me here, and uh, we'll start right in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, her sister, Martha, excuse me. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. This is not the story we heard last week. 
This actually happens in chapter 12. This is a foreshadowing of what will happen. And it's a different time when a woman takes expensive perfume, pours it on Jesus' feet, and wipes his feet with her hair. So it gives you some indication that wasn't an uncommon cultural event. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. This is not just informative. They are sponsors of his ministry. And there's a bit of expectation in this. It's kind, it's gracious, but it's an invitation to come and deal and help. And they know that he loves Jesus, loves Lazarus. And when he heard this, verse 4, it says, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death, an interesting phrase. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's not that he forgot, he just wrote that. This is for emphasis. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now he's about a two-day two journey away where Jesus was. We know from chapter 10. He's all the way down out in the desert. And by down, I mean that Bethany is up higher, quite a ways above sea level. And Jesus is way out across the Jordan on the eastern side. And he's about two days away. He's about 20 miles, but it's 3,800 feet of elevation, which would be significant when you're walking. But he waits for two days. Then he said to the disciples, let's go back. But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews were going to stone you, and you're going to go back? And Jesus said, aren't there 12 day hours of daylight? A man who walks by day won't stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. This flip-flopping back and forth metaphor of light and day is Jesus' very kind way of telling them, you don't have any idea what's going on here, okay? You're in the dark, I'm in the light, we're going to come to where the light is and you'll figure this out, is in effect what it says. After he'd said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. The disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. It's good for him, right, to sleep and rest? Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. This is interesting because there was a very common connection between death and sleep. And so much so, the Greeks had a mythical story of two twin brothers. One was named Sleep and the other was named Death. And it was very common, but they didn't get it. So, verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there. What kind of a sentence is that? For your sake, I was glad, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. So let's go. Then Thomas, one of the twins, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Thomas is often thrown under the bus because of his, let me touch his hands in the side. Thomas is here saying, we're going, we're with. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dim in the tomb for four days. This was what he expected. He knew this was coming. So he's not surprised by what he's going to find. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Now, that's not where they were from, but where they had came from. But this is where these people are going to be mentioned here. It's just two miles away, so a couple hours walk. And many Jews had come to Mary and Martha and to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now, this was very common. They would have a, they called it the Shiva, the Jewish process of a week long of time 
where the family would literally just stay in the house and people would come and bring them food and mourn with them and cry with them and love on them. And that process is still in many places in Judaism, still practiced today. But when Martha heard, verse 20, that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet Jesus, but Mary stayed home. This is not any implication about their judgment on him. Because all these people are visiting them from Jerusalem to mourn with them, somebody has to stay at the house. It would be very offensive for all of the family to leave the house because these people are here to mourn with them. So they split up. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You hear a little bit of expectation in that. That's okay. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now, what is she thinking about? Is she remembering the stories of the few others that he has raised from the dead? Is she thinking back to chapter 9 when the blind man is healed? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This was the common belief of the people, was that there was a resurrection, that people would be reassembled for a great ending. And the Pharisees taught this. Sadducees didn't. Pharisees did. But Jesus said to her, here's the theological core of this entire process right here. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, think about the, that is not a common sentence that somebody would have said. You're used to it now. Nobody would have said that then. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's why we read those verses. If Jesus walked in here today, if he came to the funeral of your mother, if he attended when your child was born, if he came to your daughter's wedding and he encountered you, he would say something like this. I am what this is about. Resurrection is the linchpin. Do you believe? He would ask us that today. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Do you remember when Jesus asked the disciples, what are people saying about me? They're like, oh, some think you're Elijah, some think you're John the Baptist, come to life, whatever. Who do you guys think that I am? Peter says almost this exact same sentence. You are the Messiah. By the way, at almost every time in the New Testament when Christ is used, it might as well be translated Messiah. It has Jewish intones within it. Jesus was his name, but Christ was his title as Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And after this, she, went, she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus hadn't entered the village yet, but he's still out at the place where he had met with Martha. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed that she quickly got up, they followed her thinking she's probably going out to the tomb to mourn. You can almost see them going, wait, should we stay here with Martha? Should we go with Mary? What should we do? That would have been common that they're trying to navigate this. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and says the same sentence word for word, Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus listened to the emotion, when Jesus saw her weeping, this is not just he, he noticed it. This is he noticed. He beheld is the old word. Her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. These two words are fascinating. They're onomatopoeias. They kind of sound like something in the original language. The first one is it's the, the mocking of the, or a mimic of what a crow sounds like when it's on high alert, that croaking, rah, rah, that croaking sound. And the second one is the sound that a horse makes when it's on high alert and it's freaking out and it can't see behind it, that snorting sound. That's where these words come from. They're animal sounds. They're profoundly emotional. Where have you laid him, he said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. This is, this is not just a, oh, I'm kind of wanting to make sure you guys kind of know I care. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, well, wait. And I don't think they're being smarmy. I think this is legit. Wait, didn't he just heal the blind guy? We know about that. Couldn't he have come? This thing that Lazarus had apparently was not that bad. Couldn't he have done something about this? Yes, is the answer, yes. Jesus once more deeply moved. And this is, he's barely holding it together. Came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, thinking practically, by this time, there's a bad odor because he's been in there four days. This was their intent. You probably know this, but they had family, especially people of means, like this family was. They had family caves. They would take the body in, put some spices in to make it palatable for a little while. Then they left it for a year in the tomb to decay. Then they would take the bones, put them in one of those little ossuaries, those little boxes, and they dug a hole in the side wall, and they put... For generations, they put the people in the sidewall in the cave. Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and says, Father, you can hear him. He's just still just choking back the emotion. I thank you that you have heard me. I know that I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of these people that are around me that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he said to, called out in a loud voice, piercing through the tears, Jesus, come out, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, and his hands and feet were wrapped in strips of linen like it would have been for his preparation for the burial. And Jesus said, somebody please untie the poor guy. <laughs> he's probably walking like this. I don't know, because he's tied up. And therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and they'd seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But of course, some thought it was a vast right-wing conspiracy and went and told the Pharisees. <laughs> Is this one of the most fascinating stories in the Bible? I mean, unbelievable. But we're going to, you could seriously pull theology out of here for six weeks, but we're going to drill into some of the emotions and some of those questions that I mentioned that I had that day. 
First of all, why would Jesus wait, ensuring the pain of the death? Do you believe in your mind that this is the only time in human history that God had a purpose in letting someone die? Does that even make sense? We, we look through our lenses and we say, well, God, why wouldn't you take this away? Why wouldn't you keep the pain down? Can you see the purpose? Jesus here gives us the exact what about it, okay? He defines it for us. We often don't get that purpose. In fact, every single day people experience this and they don't get the purpose. But unless God is just uh, some kind of a removed creature out there or non-creature, creator, he has purpose in all that's going on around us. C.S. Lewis said it beautifully, God screams to us in our pain. It's his way to get his attention from us. And I also want to just point this out quickly. Sometimes I hear this said, well, this is Satan's way to discourage us and to trip us up and to cause us. Do not give Satan credit. I mean, don't give him any credit. This is God's business, life and death. Talk to God about it. That's the point. Are there faithful ways to grieve? <laughs> we have a model here. It's interesting. The Shiva process was a week of the family in the home, the profound grievers, with others around taking care of them. Another month of time where they didn't really go out to do too much, but they would take care of their own meals and things. And a year of time of general sense of we don't go to water world and we don't go uh, do much. It's, about, it's that process. Now, is that a formula? No. In fact, what I'm sure is that every single person in every single scenario, if we had 10 people in the exact same circumstance, they're all going to experience grief in different ways. I promise you that. I've watched it enough. But here's the thing. There are parameters. There's a right, there's a faithful way to grieve. How are you going to find that out? You're not going to read a verse. You're not going to find a formula. You have to find out from God. You have to get that information from others around you who love you and, and that you trust, who care for you. You have to interact with the Holy Spirit. You may have to create time to listen to the Holy Spirit on his terms to give you information about that. That's the point. That's the point. That's why it's so profound. And third... What about these emotions that Jesus is experiencing? And what about emotions in general? First of all, we know from the reading, these were profound. They have in them strong senses of fear. There is incredible rage and anger. The wave of anger, if you felt that wave mm -hmm. swarm in on you, 
Jesus was feeling this in this circumstance. Why? I don't know that we'll ever figure out. I've read 20 different reasons. Everything from Jesus is feeling all the pain and all the, the difficulty of all history of all humanity in this moment, all the way down to Jesus misses Lazarus and something in between there. I think it's plausible that he is anticipating what his own mother is going to go through in just a few days. He's already grieved with his mother once when Joseph died. He can feel it, can't he? And these exact women, they're going to celebrate the resurrection, but then they're going to go right back to the, the pain of loss of Jesus and the disciples and so many. This is real. And his own pain. This comes back up. These words come back up in the idea when he is about ready to announce to them, one of you is going to betray me. It says he's deeply troubled in his spirit. Same feeling. When he's in Gethsemane, deeply troubled. Interestingly, when he says to the disciples, do not be troubled and do not be afraid. Same word. Profound emotion. Do we know why? I don't know that we'll ever know why. I do know this. Jesus feels and he felt and that was on purpose. It was the plan from the beginning before creation ever happened that God was going to put creatures on this earth. We were going to experience the profound joy of life and the profound sorrow of death. And Jesus was going to come and get in here with us. Stop and think about it theologically. If he had not experienced anger, shame, disgrace, joy, all of the full range of the emotions, he would not qualify as our priest, as the book of Hebrews tells us. He would not qualify as human. I know this for sure. I promise you, his desire is that you would turn to him and say, I need help. Lord, if you would not have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. If you would have been here, this would be a different outcome. We don't know how to navigate this. We need your help. Jesus, do you know that even the ones who die will live? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That happens most profoundly for us in these moments. That's for you. That's for the people around you. That's for all of human history as far as we can tell. The great thinkers of the Enlightenment the ones who started us down the trail with understanding emotion. Marx and Darwin were exact contemporaries. They built ideas of how life came to be and how economics would work and how it doesn't need God at all. That was their intent, was to come up with a naturalistic plan. I'm not throwing the whole thing out of the, out of the window and saying there's no truth in it because that's obviously not the case. But the intent was we don't need God. Then Freud comes just a couple of decades behind and starts in the process. He was the most popular, but there were several. 
who, who start us thinking about, so what does this mean with our emotions? And emotions were basically then said to, at that point, to say, we are complete slaves to our emotions. There's nothing we can do. They rule our lives, and we have to just take it and figure out either how to medicate against it or meditate enough that we kind of come to terms with it and put it back in its box or mediate in some other way that we get somebody involved from the outside to work. That was not the intent. By at the driving of the entire mechanism, emotions are given to us on purpose to drive us toward God. That's the purpose. We know for sure Jesus definitely modeled the sense that this is true. And he turns, he talks to his father, and the next thing that happens is Lazarus comes out of the grave. No coincidence. Those profound things take us to need hope, and what we, what we now have to look back to is the resurrection of Christ himself as the great illustration that God does, he's going to put it back to right. He's going to do that. We're going to have bodies that are different than these. They're incorruptible. We're going to have a future. We have that. And that's what he encourages us to do. I hope that you feel affirmation of emotions, but I hope that you also feel the purpose in emotions today. Let's pray. Lord, these are profound statements and amazing stories. And on a personal level, we didn't talk about a lot of specific little details and things that we can do. But I do know that you've built us. Emotions are indicators for us. They're a, uh, a means to the end of us coming towards you. And often we turn away. We go other directions. But we ask that you would fill our minds and our hearts. Give us a a sense of mechanisms that we can employ, uh, activities, beliefs, and behaviors that move back in towards our emotions. Have a sense of, of uh, some parameters of, of faithfulness within emotions. But also to realize, ultimately, it is to drive us to you. That's your calling card. And uh, we can come in a number of ways, but help us to be motivated to have that passion and with the passion in, in good times or in tough times, may we turn to you. Thanks for this story. Thank you for the tears of those through the New Testament and the contrast it provides to the great joy of Easter. I'm already looking forward to that more. We love them, you and give ourselves to you. Amen. If the ushers would come for...